Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. Over the last decade, everyone involved with Hollywood has been having a crisis about the death of the middle-tier movie, the sort of thing that used to prop up the industry in the 1990s. It probably starred Richard Gere wearing a suit or Gina Davis coming home for the holidays, and it probably cost somewhere between 30 and 60 million. But the world changed. And now all Hollywood produces is mega blockbusters. If we want to live in a future with interesting movies, then someone needs to work out how to pay for them. For answers to that question, we turn to Brian Newman. Brian used to be the CEO of Tribeca Film Festival, but left to start his own company, Subgenre. And now he consults on content strategy, development, distribution, and marketing for some of the top brands in the world, as well as producing his own indie movies. So look, right now, you know, obviously there's quite a lot of tension in the world of movies, in the world of Hollywood. And, and I would say that Perhaps at the root of that tension has been a difficulty bringing together the worlds of tech and the future possibilities of that, mm -hmm. the worlds of brands who don't have a longstanding history with being production companies, and the worlds of artists. Now, a lot of your career seems to be about bringing those things together. Right. Can you see a more positive future for, for this relationship? Are we at a nadir right now? I think it's been a pretty turbulent time, but the reason I'm working at that intersection is I do think that's a, a place of possibility for some interesting things to happen. It's also, to be frank up front, a, a perilous place because anytime you bring brands in the conversation, they can turn it into just pure marketing babble. So my hope is if you nail that right mix where You've got companies and brands that are trying to make something people actually want to watch mm. and not just watch, but tell someone else they should watch it too and are focused on doing something more high quality. That can be a couple of things, a new point of funding for quality projects um, because the financial picture for making good cinema has been pretty shaky. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is brands understand marketing and how to get other eyeballs on something. And that's been one of our biggest problems in the film field is most film people don't know a thing about marketing um, or aggregating audiences in any way. So I think there's a lot of potential there. However, I always say like, you don't want to end up with like just a bunch of talking tacos for Taco Bell, like <laughs> bad advertising. And so I'm trying to work at that at juncture where, you know, more like St. Laurent funding Almodovar to make a mm. film, which they did this year, mm. which is like a true movie that played at the Cannes Film Fest, and it's getting released by real distributors uh, to regular audiences, and it's not seen as an advertisement, but it aligns with the brand's interest as well as the artist's interest. In general, how do artists kind of react to this type of idea? Because artists are you know, quite conservative in some ways. Absolutely. It's interesting. I think about 10 years ago, a lot of artists that I know that you would call auteurs, so to speak, this was anathema. They didn't want anything to do with this sector. Uh, and that's changed dramatically in the last few years to where 
people are calling me up, begging me to introduce them to, to brands that might fund their work. And I think there's still a healthy skepticism and quality artists want to make sure they're not working with brands that don't to have the same values they do. Like they don't want to sure. necessarily work with say Exxon or, you know, someone in, in that space. So that, that the healthy skepticism is good, but there's a lot more openness to it. I mean, I don't think you would have seen Amadovar and Cronenberg and big name directors like that. Was Anderson? Doing, yeah. yeah. Doing these kind of films um, just a few years ago, even, mm. but there's more openness to it now. And what about from the brand perspective? You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like going and watching art house movies, but I, I wonder if I could sit in a room and convince, you know, like a hard nosed executive at Cartier that the most important thing that they could do would be fund a, <laughs> uh, you know, like a, a cockeyed view of the world from, you know, a particular artist. Yeah, no, it doesn't work for every brand. And, and I think why you saw the best auteur example uh, being a fashion brand, because they mm. are aligning themselves with arts and culture in a different way. That's not going to necessarily work for just randomly pulling out of a hat, you know, a, a bank or sure. something like that, um, or more of a consumer-focused product company. What, what I'm finding is happening more often is it does work very well for documentaries mm -hmm. because you have to remember a lot of companies, they're not just trying to sell product. They're also trying to build their brand with consumers around some kind of values, proposition, what they stand for. And also they've got their own employees that they're trying to recruit and retain and people feel better about working at a place that cares about something. So a lot of times the companies I'm working with are doing this as much for those reasons as for selling a product. For example, we did a project with Publicis Sapient, which is a big tech consulting firm. It was about something in the criminal justice sector that their technology helps with, mm. but it wasn't about their brand. But it enabled their staff to be able to say to their mom for the first time, like, that's the kind of work we end up doing. Like our software let that happen where this person got out of prison because they could prove that they had this history that they should be, go into mental health treatment instead of the criminal justice system. They've never been able to explain to their parents what the heck they do before. Mm. That to Pulisa Sapient is a, a reason to do those kind of films. But most of the brands I'm working with, it's more like Patagonia, which is an outdoor company and they care a lot about climate change and environmental issues and sustainability. And so when they're making a film, it might have a surfer in it, which they sell surf equipment, but instead of just beauty shots of a surfer, it's also about their activism around illegal ocean dumping or something like that. So those films have an audience. There's an audience that wants to watch those films and learn more about it, uh, maybe take action on an issue. There's no product placement for the brand in there whatsoever, but if you go to the to shop later and buy a Patagonia jacket, arguably you're going to feel better buying it from them than someone else because you know they stand for certain values. That's the sweet spot for a lot of them. That's not going to solve the 75% of the films that Locarno plays that are more you know auteur-driven artistic films. They're not going to overlap. So I'm not trying to say that our entire conversation should be about brands for one or, or two, that, that the film industry's conversation should be about brands. I just think it's one little piece of the puzzle that, that can help towards the future. Well, I mean, clearly there's the need for alternative funding models, right? Yeah. Angel Studios is an interesting one. Yeah. Obviously they put out The Sound of Freedom. I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't seen it. It doesn't really appeal to me. But the, the model 
which I've seen you write about, of uh, approaching people who are kind of, their, their politics point in the same direction as those of the filmmaker. Right. Um, and encouraging them to effectively you know, crowdfund the project and then go out and buy loads of tickets for cinemas, which may well sit there empty with nobody walking in and watching the movie, but still allows that film to at least for a one week eclipse Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. It's fascinating, but I'm interested to know if you think that works for any group of people who aren't like QAnon adjacent white savior imperialists. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the politics of the film studio which are probably not as crazy right-wing QAnon adjacent as people are starting to say they are. I think they actually, uh, they come from a Mormon background. So it's definitely Christian and it's a little bit more conservative, but I don't think they're embracing the conspiracy theories the way people think they are. But what they've done is what's important to do is strip away all of that and just look at the business model behind it, which is, there are niche audiences that are underserved, that care passionately about certain types of content, and they tapped into that audience and has them involved in as a crowd in everything from selecting the projects they do to funding them to then funding the distribution of them, like literally funding the, the P&A, print and advertising, marketing expenses, and then doing this idea of pay it forward where they're buying tickets for someone who can't afford to get a ticket or isn't sure they want to go to the film. So every aspect of the chain, they've crowdsourced, which crowdsourcing has been around, Kickstarter has been around, but they tied it to that niche audience. And at they, the end of the film, uh, the, the star comes on screen and says, pay it forward. Come on, guys, get right. out your phone and buy a ticket. And not only that, the beginning of the film, the star of the film says, it's important that you watch this in theaters and that other people watch it in theaters. Theaters are a sacred space. Now, I believe theaters are sacred space just as a cinema goer. I think they're also kind of intoning that it's sacred, almost like a church, but it works for their audience. And at the end of the film, they're saying, pay it forward, mm. get other people to see this, buy a ticket. That could also work for people who care about environmental issues, sustainability. That's a niche audience that really cares about the content. It also works for alternative health and lifestyles and yoga and mindfulness. And if you think about it, when um, Gary Hustwit, the filmmaker, made Helvetica, you know, a movie about a font, that gets millions of people who are obsessed with design that come mm -hmm. out for that. That same model would work for that audience, you know, people who are obsessed with design and architecture and art. And a lot of times Hollywood's not paying for those films. I think it also is true for certain demographic audiences. So the fastest growing, most active community in the United States, at least I'm, I know for films is actually Latino and Hispanic audiences. And they're extremely underserved in terms of content made for and by their community. They're saying, I love going to movies, but I don't see enough with people who look like me on the screen sure. or directed by people who look like me. And if you think about it, about more than 10 years ago, that was kind of what happened with Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry, mm -hmm. you know, in the US is a very big, popular mainstream filmmaker who's obviously not going to have a film that plays Locarno. It's more of a mainstream sure. pop culture thing. But he realized there was a sizable black audience in the US that was somewhat conservative in, in, in terms of their culture. Like they go to church, they care about religion. And so he makes films that are comedies that serve that audience 
but are also family friendly enough, you know, that they can say in the film something related to prayer or God, and it's not going to turn off that audience. Um, and Hollywood wasn't making films for that audience. And now he's the most prolific, probably most successful filmmaker in America because he tapped into that audience. If he was doing it today, he'd probably do the Angel Studios model where it would be crowdsourced from beginning to end. It's not going to work necessarily for the typical film that plays on the piazza necessarily here, but it does work for certain niche audiences. No, well, it's the interesting thing, right? Actually, a broad-ranging drama, which once upon a time would have been a better bet to support because, oh, 75% of people can get with this. Yeah. actually doesn't work at all. What you got to do is find that 25% and then hypermarket it at those people, yeah. which is effectively what digital companies and brands have been doing for 15 years. And that's what the film community, I don't think, has woken up to yet is that it used to be that all those niche audiences were dispersed and you couldn't connect them as well. And now everyone's connected through Facebook, et cetera. Yeah. And they can talk to each other on TikTok or other social media. And so your audience is no longer these little tiny pockets. You can actually hit them all at the same time mm. um, globally. And that's actually what Angel Studios is now doing. They started very US-centric, but are moving towards opening it internationally. And they're doing it direct to their audience. They're developing direct to theater relationships. So they're not going through a third party. And They're doing it through churches? No, um, they are marketing into churches, but oh, sure. they're getting people to go to the actual movie theater. And by the way, I haven't seen the movie either, and I'm not a fan of that type of film. I'm a fan of the business model. The more I've been researching it, it does appear that it's that it's legitimate. Like there's a myth going around that there's no one showing up for the movies, mm -hmm. but they've had conversations on Reddit and on. Um, message boards that are like for theater owners and operators. And people are saying like, no, people are showing up for these movies. That's why we keep booking it because the audience is actually coming to the film as well. So there's definitely some people who are buying a ticket, redeeming it online, but then not going to the movie theater just to try to drive up the numbers. But that seems to be a smaller percentage than what the naysayers are making it seem like that the audience is, is there. And I think that would be true for other projects too. Now, when you've got that kind of film that has that niche audience, not necessarily a, something that appeals to that Christian audience, but any sizable niche audience, that audience exists in you know Bulgaria and Romania and the US and Canada and Africa. You can tap into them now and bring them together in a way you couldn't before. Mm. You know, you're not going to get that for a Bellatar film uh, in the in the same way. Um, but you know, with a different type of marketing, you might be able to get it for a Wes Anderson film, right? And I think the, the bigger thing to me is just that the film industry, for the most part, has been its own blend of conservatism, meaning they just kind of, it was always plug and play. Sure. And the way distribution and marketing has worked has been not very original. What was brilliant about Angel Studios was just them realizing we can market crowdfunding in a different way than the way Kickstarter is doing it. And we can do it with a specific audience a certain way use different terminology that appeals to our audience. Um, and I just think that filmmakers and film industry can can think about it. How can they apply that same model to themselves, take away little pieces of it? Not every single aspect is going to apply to every movie, but some some aspects of it can help us think of new ways of marketing films, which we desperately need. Mm. I mean, beyond kind of cinematic distribution, I'm interested in what your perspective is on digital distribution, on alternative 
streamers and and whether or not you think the the future of digital release will 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 remain in the hands of you know three or four very large companies with fantastic tech and great players or if if we really are going to see a very successful uh, explosion of alternative streamers i know i know there are a lot but but i i wonder if they could ever take a larger uh, portion of the market i wonder too so i'm not sure <laughs> so my feeling is we're we're we seem to be finding that streaming is not the best business model. It seemed like it was, you know, Netflix was working out pretty well, but it, it wasn't a great revenue generator, um, net revenue generator for a long time. And it seems to be that I think what we're going to find out is that you can only operate a streamer if you also have another business that makes money around it. So if you're Amazon and you're selling tons of diapers and other items, and you happen to also have movies, that's a value add for your prime membership. Yeah. That works. If you're Disney and have theme parks and uh, things like that as well, you have a physical business, Apple, you have computers you're selling, that can work. And I think Netflix even will be bought up by one of those operators before long. My hope is that as that consolidation happens and you're, you've got just, you know, we're back to where we have, you know, in the US, we had three broadcasters and now I have like two or three streamers that maybe there'll be room for niche players to come in. Mm. They're able to tap into those niche communities. But I am worried that the types of films I love, the, the ones that I would go see here at this, at this festival or any other film fest I go to, often don't fall into that rubric of, you know, hitting the Christian market or hitting the alternative health and lifestyle market and meditation or whatever. You know, is there a big enough audience for art house and independent cinema to make a niche? And I'm not sure there is. Um, I hope there is, but I'm historically that type of film falls to the wayside in every other technical marvel we've had. <laughs> I mean, and this is and this is ultimately the you know the the problem with that kind of that that super niche micro marketing that we've been talking about is that actually what it will probably tend to reward. Uh, filmmakers or films that are telling the audience what they want to believe, that are reassuring their values. Whereas most of the films that play somewhere like this, most of our our films actually are there to make you feel quite weird and question everything you think about. (laughs) Yeah. But then you get 8,000 people in the piazza and not every film that's playing out there is bullet train. I mean, there's some difficult, hard films and people are coming and, and, but it's an event. Yeah. So it works in an event. The question is, can you turn the online experience into an event? And I think that's something film festivals are trying to figure out and the industry is trying to figure out and we haven't nailed it yet. What has worked are things like Turner Classic Movies. And it started just as a channel, but then they've eventized it on the channel itself and that you've got smart people talking about the movies in between them. You're getting retrospectives uh, that are thematically organized the way you would do at a film fest. And they've done things like the Turner Classic Festival, the Turner Classic Cruise, and people show up in droves. I mean, there is a small bit of hope that m- maybe a, a movie or someone like them could capture that marketplace yeah. in, the, in the future. Um, but I think it's going to have to be by tying that audience together globally, not worrying about time zones and geographic boundaries the way our industry has been set up. You know, It's all about selling territories like mm. you know you sell the rights to the film in switzerland and in germany and and italy all separately each distributor is doing something separate that model doesn't work in an online world tcm is a great example right because 
look, I'm from England. We don't get Turner Classic movies. Within the last few years, it's really kind of lurched into my life as a coherent brand, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not it's a streaming company or just distribution companies or if they're production companies as well, but they effectively have to think of themselves as a, a, a Disney or an A24 or a Vice where it's like they produce things, but they have an identity. Yeah, you have to build a brand. Yeah. And no brand has done it yet, but I actually think that's where the overlap that I was talking about before with brands and film can be interesting yeah. because you you could see, especially in the fashion world, you know, a Gucci or someone who's pulling out of a hat saying like, actually our brand should be about these kind of like movies that matter mm. and and maybe they're a little bit quirky and fit our brand in certain ways, but they've got a physical business, they've got a marketing arm, they know how to brand things, and that could be a piece of their brand too. We Transfer is trying to do that with We Present. They're very focused on fine artists and cutting edge filmmakers and trying to build their brand around that. We'll see if it works, sure. but that's what they're trying to do. And they won an Oscar already. They funded Riz Ahmed's short that won the Oscar this past year, not this year, but the year prior. They're onto something. And they're also financing fine artists and galleries that are doing interesting shows. And, and they're slowly building a brand recognized around that. And I think there's room for others to do that. I think there's room for a handful of festivals to do that. For example, in the US, there's a few festivals that have targeted around genre films, in particular, like horror and thriller. So that, that's a brand that can extend uh, potentially. but I, it, I mean, I think there's a very interesting possible future in kind of genre because obviously everybody talks about horror being the unbreakable model, the one thing that you can rely on to make money, uh, yeah. the one thing that gets people into cinemas, over-indexes with women, over-indexes with uh, younger younger audiences. But I actually think the missing trick, and I think action will go down that line as well. And yeah. I just think I just think more genre filmmaking. I could see monster movies doing that. You know, I could see lots of different things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you used to run uh, Tribeca yeah. and, you know, we're talking about the entire industry changing, the entire industry imagining, reimagining itself. How do film festivals fit into that? Yeah, it's the central question for our industry right now. Um, and I think, to be honest, most festivals haven't been doing a great job of addressing it. There's a reason for that, just to be fair at the beginning of this, is that, you know, we're just coming at this moment, you know, we're still getting impacted by COVID, but we're coming out of that moment when it was really shutting down festivals and that killed their budgets. And some festivals, you know, they were about to take place and then the next day they had to shut down. So they'd already spent all the money setting everything up and, you know, that's hard to recover from. And when you're trying to plug budget gaps, it's hard to have enough mind space to think about the future. So I think that's why they've been slow to respond. Um, not just because I'm here, am I saying this, but I, I, one of the reasons I'm coming here is I think Locarno is actually trying to think about that future. You know, mm -hmm. it's one of the few festivals that has a chief innovation officer and has an endowed professorship at the university thinking about these issues. You don't see that same activity of thinking around how do festivals change for the future of film going mm -hmm. at very many others. I would argue that even the most important festival right now in the world is, is probably can and they're doing great at what they do but they're not thinking about the future and they're uh -huh. not changing whatsoever but festivals are also on to something which is you know it's, it's the eventized nature of it and and people come out for it and it gets audience members coming out so how do you think of extending that year round and it's not an easy solution no, but it's not, but it's effectively what we're talking about. It's how do you how do you create a brand that exists beyond 12 days? Yeah. 
it's actually not rocket science because these places already have a really coherent brand. Yeah. And that is high quality cinema. Yeah. And so I think it's going to be a mixture of things. It's going to be what each individual festival does. I think also a lot of the small to mid-tier festivals that have not differentiated themselves to their local community are going to probably fall to the wayside. Mm. But the good ones that are, that are building brands and building it around presence and are keeping artistic integrity have a lot of room to grow. And I think there's also going to be possibilities for collaboration amongst festivals. So to this day, I still would love to be able to open up an app that instead of being Rotten Tomatoes, where it's the entire crowd and every single critic and some of them, I don't know who the hell they are. If I could just look at what the top 20 festival curators mm. think I should see, that would help me narrow down the gazillion options I've got on you know, Apple, Netflix, Hulu, all my subscriptions, none of which the algorithm is serving me up what I actually want to see. It's Letterboxd though, isn't it? But they're not doing it on Letterboxd mm. right now. A lot of them, you know, the festivals are kind of reluctant to put out what they think about films beyond their festival. Um, I found programmers as a whole, they, they like to talk about their films in their catalog, but not the rest of the year. Sure. But I think they are the trusted voice that we want year round. There's just a lot of room for growth there. Um, it's also the other stuff, like what you're doing here with the, the, the podcast and, and trying to make more interesting conversations is one piece of it. I could see a lot of interesting things with deeper, more interesting, not surface level PR conversations with the artists and the talent as well. We forget, and we're kind of in an insular industry where, where we're talking to each other, but I always use my parents as an example. Like my mom and dad love this kind of stuff and they're not getting served and, mm -hmm. and they would love to be able to tune in to not just Locarno, but any other festival near them that was telling them more about films they should see, having an interesting, smart conversation um, with an actor or director from it, not just, you know, the PR speak type stuff, but something meaningful. And that audience is out there is just, it's just a lot of times we think it's just the industry and the cinephiles only, but it's, it's broader than we think it is. So. Cool. Well, that was very interesting, Brian. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks again to Brian. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell.